Uh, we're going to jump into Galatians 2 uh, from verse 11. And, and I'll read that and then we'll uh, yeah, jump into the message. So when Cephas, that's Peter, came to Antioch, this is Paul speaking, I opposed him to his face, strong words, because he stood condemned. For before certain men, uh, for before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belong to the circumcision group. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy, so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. When I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Peter in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. How is it then? that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs. We who are Jews by birth are not sinful Gentiles. I know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. But if... In seeking to be justified in Christ, we Jews find ourselves also among the sinners. Doesn't that mean that Christ promotes sin? Absolutely not. If I rebuild what I destroyed, then I really would be a lawbreaker. For through the law, I died to the law so that I might live for God. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not set aside the grace of God, for if righteousness could be gained through the law, Christ died for nothing. Let me just pray, hey. Uh, Father, we we come here tonight and we want uh, your word, Jesus, to be illuminated. And we want uh, the eyes of our hearts, Lord, to be opened so that we might see him in increasing measure. And so, uh, and, and to be moved, in fact, by who he is. And so reveal him, your word to us tonight, I pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, look, uh, before I get into a little bit of an explanation of this, I needed to start the sermon with a bit of musical theory. And I'm not very musical. I'm somewhat musical. But my brother, as it so happens, has done a Bachelor of Music. So I called him to check that this is legit. And it is. So uh, what I'm going to explain is, is how the melody and the harmony of music works. Now, I was just going to crack into my sermon because I used this analogy a little bit tonight, but I'm thinking maybe some people don't actually know how this works, so better, I better explain it. And then I help me get my head around it. So in a song, you've got the melody, and uh, if I was really brave, I'd sing. <laughs> but it's, it's, the, uh, it's the main tune of the song, right? It's, it's what everyone's singing, what everyone's hearing, it's cutting through. And then... Uh, on top of and below the, me- the melody is the harmony. So the harmony is a corresponding, and uh, Norell will correct me here if I'm wrong, a corresponding note to the melody that, that blends with it, but uh, the harmony is, uh, it, it, it's not a thing in itself. It is a thing in itself. It's an individual note, but it's based on, corresponds to the melody. It doesn't make sense if it doesn't correspond to the melody. And so I can sing melody, I can sing the tune, but I don't know how to sing harmony, like to, to harmonize with the melody, right? So there's a bit of musical theory uh, for you to begin tonight. The melody is the main thing. It sets the tone, the tune of the song, and there's, there's a harmony that sits above and below it that corresponds to the melody. And uh, I've got a few nods, so I think that's, uh, I think that's correct. 
In this series, we've been considering a prayer that Jesus makes to his Father at the end of his life, and he prays that we would be one with God, and in being one with God, we would be one with each other. The individuality of our wills, our distinctness, uh, the, uh, the, the fact that we are all individuals is maintained in this oneness, but we as separate individuals are brought completely together as one in love, by love for one another. We're brought together and we, we harmonize, we're in union together. Each note is played individually, harmonized around the melody, the melody being Christ, the spirit of Jesus Christ. He's the, he's the tune, he's the, uh, the, the truth. And each of our lives can become an individual distinct note to his note that corresponds to him and creates oneness, creates harmony. And we're brought together through his spirit, the spirit of love in us. So it's not that we all have to be the identical person. We don't all have to look the same. We don't all have to um, somehow have the same consciousness. We're brought together through love for one another. And so as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, there will come a time when God will be all in all. God will be everything in everybody is what he's saying there. This is Christ's vision for humanity. Nothing less than this. And uh, we're a bit of a way from it at the moment in our world. We know that. But this is where we are headed. This is what Christ is committed to bringing about. That each one of us would be in complete unity, complete oneness and harmony with one another, brought together by the love of God, the way that he loves us. That love being in each one of us towards every other person. It's a high vision. It's a lofty vision. But for this vision to become a reality, God is working and he will not stop working. God is bringing this about. His work requires every person to be a part of it. We all need to buy in on this. If there's one person who's not buying in on it, there's not complete oneness. There's not complete unity. And so Jesus came, and he, he, he even still is now, but Jesus came and he played his part perfectly. He gave us the true melody of life, the melody that each one of us is to harmonize with. And the sooner that our lives join his melody, the sooner that we fall in step with him, align ourselves with him, harmonize with him, by following him, by being as, his, being as he is, the greater the sound of unity will grow and the more others will realize that their solos are grating with the truth of reality. The, the, the sound will, of Christ will be echoed through our lives. We will be joining Christ and it will get louder and louder and louder, and everyone else who's playing to their own, their own tune, make, seeking to make their own melody, they will hear this growing sound, and they will say, I'm out of step with the universe. I'm out of step with what is true, and that's what's happened in each one of our lives. If you're a Christian here tonight who's decided to align yourself with Jesus, commit your life to Him, and actually follow Him, move your life from where it is, where it was, make real changes in your life to align with Him, 
That's the decision you've made. So we've, we've joined the melody of Christ. We're harmonizing with him and we're making his sound large in the world. It's men and women seeking to be independent, to play their own melody by themselves, standing apart from others, standing apart from everyone else, and therefore standing apart from God. It's that which blocks God's eternal global vision from coming about. And, uh, and the sooner we all get on board, the, the more we align ourselves with Him, the faster this thing will be brought to completion. Jesus played his part perfectly and now he invites us to to jump completely on board with him. Selfishness, standing apart, seeking to be independent, seeking to play our own melody is a scattering force. It's essentially, it's of essence, a disunifying force. All its manifestations, greed, jealousy, hatred, All of these things which are selfishness are scattering forces. They separate, they divide. And so last week in this series, we turned to the church in Galatia where there was a scattering going on. There'd been a a unification around Christ. they, They had got on board with Christ's melody and they were starting to come together and then there was a a pulling apart. There was a a moving away that was beginning to happen. The Gentile and the Jewish believers were starting to head away from each other rather than towards each other in increasing measure. And the cause of this scattering, of course, was selfishness. But the particular variety, the particular flavor, I suppose you could say, was that the Jews were seeking to establish their own righteousness before God, a a self-righteousness. It was a religious self-righteousness. They were saying if you adhere to these Jewish laws, specifically circumcision, the, the Jewish festivals, the days, if you do those things, then you are chosen by God and only then. If you do those things, then you have a claim on the presence of God. You have a claim on being in his family, on him, on calling him father, but until then you don't. And so these self-righteous Jews who had done those things, who had been circumcised, who were keeping the special days, who had done all the Jewish festivals, these self-righteous Jews would judge the Gentiles and in doing so separate themselves. We read about that. Even Peter, he calls him Cephas because he was Cephas before he started to follow Christ. He calls him by his old name, his sinful name. Cephas even was, was led astray. Barnabas was led astray into this I don't actually think Peter and Barnabas were being self-righteous, but they couldn't withstand the pressure of the Jews. They folded to the pressure. And so even Cephas and Barnabas separated themselves from the Gentiles, who because the Gentiles had not been circumcised, the Jews would look upon them and judge them and say, they are unrighteous, they are not chosen of God, they are rejected and condemned before God, and so we also condemn them. Uh, But this was actually a self-righteousness. It was them seeking to establish themselves. Christ said this in Matthew chapter 7. He said, and this is going to be our key text really for, for tonight. He said, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For in the way you judge, 
you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Uh, This judgment that Jesus is speaking of here is the discerning of difference between you and another individual to the end of gratifying yourself, to the end of, of building yourself, of securing yourself, of puffing yourself up. And it is this that is the quenching of love. The love of self is the quenching of the love of of another, isn't it? Uh, Religious self-righteousness might might not be our particular flavor or variety, depending on whether you're, uh, you know, have been a part of Christianity for a long time. We condemn people for all sorts of things. We condemn them for what they wear, what their race is, what their background is, how much money they have. We, We judge them for what they do, for what they say, And truly, it's a horrid thing. We know it's a horrid thing because we actually usually do it in the dark place of our mind, in the secret place. We don't, we don't manifest it usually. It's a thought pattern. We look at people and how they are and we use our reflection upon them for a secret self-satisfaction. This is judgment. We condemn others to feel right about ourselves. If we just try and be a little bit objective, it's hard for us to do to escape our own minds and our own hearts. But if you just be objective for a second, think about using someone else, maybe even their weakness, their sin, their mistakes, their anything, to feed a sense of self-satisfaction. Isn't that a horrid thing? To, to use someone in that way for your, for your pride, for your ego. What a horrific thing that judgment is. What a dividing force judgment is. And we see here, this is what the Jews are doing. They're condemning the Gentiles with their flavor of religious self-righteousness. They're condemning them. They're saying, you, you, are, you, are not, you are not chosen of God. You are condemned before him. He, he hates you because you haven't done these things, but we have. This is simply not the spirit of Jesus Christ. Christ never judges ever. Can't, impossible. Though he is perfect, he never turns up his nose. He never casts a look of superiority towards us. There is simply no self-righteousness in this man, Jesus. It it, it doesn't exist, not a hint. Uh, There's the beautiful passage where the, the, the Pharisees, they pull this woman out, caught in adultery, and, and they say, teacher, what should we do? And they're using the law, of course, they're looking down upon this woman saying, oh, we would never do such a thing. And Jesus says, uh, feel free to cast the, the first stone. 
But woman, I do not, I do not, I do not judge you. Go and sin no more. But that's, that's Christ relating to a, a woman who has committed sin. Uh, think, of, think of Jesus when he, bla- not blasts, that's a strong word. Think of Jesus when he, he speaks with the Pharisees in such a strong, often angry manner. When he flips the tables up. There's no hint of self-righteousness in this. He, he's not writing them off in this In this moment, he's loving them. He's not doing these things to build himself. He's not condescending to the Pharisees from his lofty moral heights saying, look how righteous I am and how unrighteous you are for your hypocrisy. Christ has no height. He said himself, my goodness is not mine. It's his, it's my father's. Jesus never claimed any righteousness as his own. He says, I possess no self-made righteousness. The only thing he had is faith in a God, in a Father who is good, who is righteous. And, and as he had faith in this man, God's righteousness came and, and shone through Jesus, but he didn't claim it as his own. He didn't lord it over others to, to build himself. When we head down this direction, I think uh, the logical thing that arises in my mind, and I, I don't know whether it's arising in your mind, is, well then, are we not to make any distinction between right and wrong? Is there, is there no right? Is, I mean, we can't judge. There's no right. There's no wrong. Do we just have to, you know what I mean? Like sort of blur our vision. I mean, who can deny, we, we think, to, who can deny that they're, the way they're gossiping? Who can deny that that's wrong? Who can deny that the way they're stealing, that's wrong? Who can deny the way that they hate, the way that they are greedy, the way that they ridicule Jesus as we look out pe- about people in our lives? Do I need to blur my eyes to that? Is, is God not displeased with these things? Is there an internal difference between right or wrong? Are we to just put our head in the sands? We can't judge. We can't judge, you know what I mean? Uh, if Christ is our head, if he's our Lord, evidently we can't do this. Jesus knew and knows the wrong in your heart and my heart better than we know it ourselves. And as we have seen, he addressed it He brought it to the surface and he brought it into the light. Even in front of others, he did that. And so if if he is our head, we can't not discern between what is right and wrong. We, We have to be able to perceive that. But the key is the reason Jesus did that was for our sakes, not for his. He didn't, he's not distinguishing to feed his ego, to feed his pride. Our lostness, our sin, didn't quench his heart of love for us. I want to see if I can explain this a little bit more. At Red Frogs, uh, a paramedic came in and just gave us a bit of a briefing. And this paramedic was telling us of an experience that he had had when uh, attending a job just on the bottom of the Gold Coast. Uh, 
And he was called, it was a serious emergency where an older man, I think I remember it being an older man, had keeled over and was in cardiac arrest. And so they called the ambulance. This, was a, this man's a senior paramedic, years and years of experience. And he is on one of those first responder cars who were the first to the scene. And as he arrived at this scene, some, some minutes after the man had had a heart attack, he, uh, so he observed that there was already people doing CPR. Um, someone was doing compressions and someone else was doing breaths. And in that moment, he perceived from his expertise that they were doing a fantastic job. They were doing CPR brilliantly, like right exactly as it was, as it was to be done. And he thought to himself in that moment, that's as good as I could do it. That I actually wouldn't be doing it better than they could, and so he let them continue. He said, there's no point in me jumping in here as, you know, I'm the paramedic, I'm the expert, I better jump in and do it. He said, no, you guys keep going. I'm actually gonna watch. I'm, he didn't even do anything. He watched these guys do CPR, obviously discerning, seeing that they were doing a, a good job, but not self-righteous in this way of, well, I'm the expert, I better jump in. He knew that the best way was for this CPR to continue. Now, let me ask you, um, if you were that man who was in cardiac arrest, would you have wanted the paramedic to judge whether the CPR was being done correctly or not? Would you want him to just come in and say, oh, well, they're, they're doing it, that's good, you know what I mean? Like, I'm not going to look and, and discern whether they're doing it good or not, but it seems like they're doing it. You know, of course you want, them, you want him to make a judgment. Of course you want him to say, look, you want him to see with his eyes of expertise and of experience, are they actually doing it? Distinction was essential in this moment. But his knowledge, his expertise, his greatness, in fact, his ability to, to make that distinction, he wasn't using that for the sake of puffing up his ego, was he? How do you know? Because he didn't jump in. He didn't say, hey, I'm the expert. I need to do this. He didn't need to justify himself by taking over in that moment. You know, it was Christ's recognition of our lostness that was essential, of our sinfulness that was essential, and it was that which caused him to come. But he said himself, I'm not coming to condemn you, to judge you, to feed my ego, to build my self-righteousness. I'm coming to save you, to lift you, because I love you. John 3, 17, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. Distinction is essential. There is eternal distinctions between what is right and wrong. They're set in concrete. We must discern them. But we need Christ's heart to be able to engage that distinction in a way that is loving in a way that's not feeding our ego, that's not feeding ourself. The Pharisees' own judgmentalism meant that when Christ came, they didn't want to receive his help. Their busyness in looking out at others and judging and condemning means that they actually felt themselves a okay. I don't need a savior. Look how good I am compared to that person. The self-righteousness blinded their eyes to true righteousness. 
This is why Jesus said, do not judge so that you will not be judged. For the way you judge, you will be judged. And by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Jesus came and it was the ones who weren't judging primarily because they didn't have anything to feel proud about. These were the ones that were saying, Jesus, come and help us. Come and help us. We are not righteous. We need, we need a righteousness. They didn't have the pretend thing. And so they, they saw the real one when it came. Uh, tonight, this is really the main point that this is all leading to tonight. And uh, so I hope, I hope you've tracked and I hope uh, you understand that uh, there's no judgment in Jesus and, and it's self-righteousness which will blind our eyes to him. But this is what I really felt that God wanted to say to us tonight. We are not to look on the, the arrogance and the self-righteousness of the Pharisees with disdain because their unbelief has been our unbelief too as a church. I was sitting with a man on, on Saturday night. He's 20 years old. He, uh, he was abused by his father as a, as a child. And uh, at, the age of the at the age of 12, he started uh, on drugs. And he's been firmly in the hands of illicit drugs since that day for eight years. And he's gone through periods where he's, he's done things that he severely regrets. He was sitting in our lounge room on Saturday night and he self-labeled himself, I'm, I'm the scum of the earth. That's what he self-labeled himself. And, and Gemma and I were there and we were sharing Jesus. We were sharing about Jesus with him. He didn't know too much about Jesus at all. But I could tell that as I was sharing with this man, he had encountered self-righteous Christianity in the past. He had encountered Christians who were self-righteous. He had encountered a Christianity which says this, because I believe intellectually these certain things about God and maybe about heaven and hell, I am safe and secure. I am going to heaven because my sin has been forgiven by Jesus, but you are going to hell because your sin has not been forgiven because you have not believed this, this and this. You better acknowledge it you better acknowledge what I believe, what I have. This is the Christianity that this man has encountered and it grieved my heart deeply, it really did because it's, it's created a blockage between, a, a stumbling block as Jesus calls it, between him and, and Christ. There is a self-righteousness in the church at the moment which is repelling our world from Christ. We are so insecure because our faith is on the shaky ground of our intellectual theories and beliefs about a God and what He wants to give us now and after we die. And because our ground is so shaky, it's so flimsy, we actually do the horrific thing of using our relation towards our neighbour to justify the ground that we are on. 
the church has drawn this firm line here between us and everyone else. We've separated ourselves from the world and we've said anyone outside of here is condemned and hated by God. We've condemned them in God's name for the horrible things that they do and, and, and believe. But we're doing this not out of love. We're doing this to firm up our position as chosen of God, as saved. It's grieving the heart of God. I know I'm talking strongly, but I, I really feel like God wants to check this in the church. This is judgmentalism, and it is not who Christ is. Dare I say it, we even evangelize in the name of Jesus and use that as a mechanism to justify that we have the truth. How... How grieving is that? That we would use Christ's name in that way to secure ourselves, to build ourselves. We condescend to help those who are so foolish to not have chosen God yet. And so our evangelism becomes frenzied. It's become, it becomes frantic because we don't see people. We see numbers. Our evangelism becomes more about us inside the church than even those who we are going to. It's an activity that affirms our status as the blessed and others as the cursed. How do I know that we do this is because I have done it myself. I know exactly what this is like. I know, I'm not, I'm not doubting that there is some part of our heart. I know because there's a part of each one of our hearts that loves the good and there is a part of our hearts that actually loves the people that we're going to. But it's mixed in with all of this unbelief and falsehood. And what's happened is our neighbours, those outside the church, have seen straight through us and have perceived our self-righteousness because the spirit cannot be hidden. There is nothing that is hidden that will not be revealed. Just as the sinners in Jesus' day, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, they looked at the Pharisees and they said, these guys are just judging us. They don't love us. They're tying up these heavy burdens on our back. And Jesus comes as, as this cool water on these dry and barren hearts. He comes as this relief to these men and women who have been under the oppression of, of self-righteousness. Dare I say it, even we, we, we do this to ourselves. We do this within the church as well. We draw lines within the line. Oh, you don't have that right doctrine. You don't, uh, you don't have this particular gift or activity. You don't have the right definition of how and what it means for Jesus to save you, so therefore you're out as well. But I want to tell you, we've got to be careful that we're not doing this out of a heart of building ourselves and blinding ourselves to the righteousness that comes through trust in Jesus. And I was sitting with Alec and Ash this afternoon. We, 
we're just reading through a book at the moment uh, written by George MacDonald and just sharing about it and, and uh, we came to a part, I'm trying to remember it now, but uh, oh, it, talked, it said, uh, it was talking about our sin and I was thinking self-righteousness because I'm preaching tonight and it said, it, said uh, it was talking about jealousy and greed and all these things and, and then he said, no essential part of us, thank God. And, and though I read those words and I said to them, I'm like, oh, that is like water to my soul. That is the water I need. I need a saviour from my self-righteous heart. Do, do you sense your need for that here tonight? I need someone who can redeem me from this part of my heart, which is wrong, which is horrid, which is horrific. A judgmentalism. You are not your sin. I am not my sin. It's no essential part of us. And he wants to, he wants to purify us. He wants to take it from our hearts. We need someone's help, don't we? Don't we need someone to trust? Don't we need someone who's strong? While we are in this place of self-righteousness, God gave forth Jesus Christ. Not a saviour from a penalty of sin, a saviour from our sin. The man who knew no judgment, who was meek and not self-seeking. Here is our refuge, this man. He is our help. He says, have faith. Obey me. Turn from your self-righteousness, confess it for what it is and say, God, please come and redeem me. And, and you lift all of your energy, anything that you have within you and pray to God that he gives you more energy. Take all of the energy he's put in your heart and conform yourself to this man. Do whatever he tells us to. It is only by continual faith, continual running to him, continually obeying him that, that we can be lifted out of our self-righteousness into the true and pure righteousness, that of Christ. This, all this means is to continually take the ordinary course of our life, our thoughts, our feelings, our judgments. It has to start there. It has to start with the mind. Take all of those things and then our actions and our desires and, and put forward whatever effort you have to say, I am going to think as Jesus thinks. I am going to seek to feel as Jesus feels. I'm going to seek to judge as Jesus judges. I'm, I'm going to seek to act as Jesus acts. I'm going to seek to speak as Jesus speaks. And don't give up and keep putting forward effort. This is why we need to come here every Friday. Or whenever you meet anywhere else, we need to come here and we need to build and encourage and say, let's go again. Let's keep fixing our eyes on Him and, and putting our faith going towards Him. Every time the Holy Spirit opens your eyes to judgment in your heart and you know it, you've looked at someone and that reflection has fed something in you, seek refuge in Christ. Say, that is not who Christ is. I'm leaving that and I'm going to Him. I'm putting myself in Him. We don't need to have the righteousness. It's in Him. It's our faith in Him. Just run to Him. Seek refuge in Christ in these moments.
when, when the wrong thing, when the thing comes up in your heart and you're like, oh man, this is the thing that, that we talked about on Friday night. Don't worry, flee to him. That's all we need to do. You don't need to try and correct it. You don't need to say, oh, no, no, I will have a good heart. Just run to him and say, that is not who Jesus is. And then seek to judge as he judges. Christ invited us in, God invited us in Christ. He has invited us to be the son and the daughter of God that you are. Did you know that is your essence? Your essence, the deepest part of you, the essential part that cannot be removed is that you are a child of God. And he is working for all of the stuff that's not, that's not a child of God to be, to be gotten out of our hearts, for us to be purified. You need to know here tonight, that is who you actually are. You have his spirit. Walk out of this place and let the Holy Spirit come to your heart, come to your mind, raise you up. And as those spirit promptings come, obey. This is who we are. Christ is our solid foundation. He is the Son of God. God has raised the melody of Christ above the cacophony of our prideful solos and songs so that we might tune our hearts to His, so that we might start playing a harmony to His melody, so a sound might rise up, so we might be one here together so that more people might join in the, in the assembly of saints, in the assembly of Jesus Christ. Christ died for all, that all might be saved. Who does that exclude? No one. No one. Invite everyone you know to flee to Christ, to obey Him, to have faith in Him, to make Him the refuge. So we're going to pray right now in this moment, and I want to invite us, actually, we need to repent. Maybe, that, maybe um, the Holy Spirit isn't, isn't alighting that self-righteous spirit that can so easily come to Christianity upon your heart, and, and that's fine, but please, can we re- repent as a corporate church here tonight, as a capital C church? Because I know each of us are having conversations with people outside of the church at the moment, and their experience has been a self-righteous Christianity. And it's pushed them away from him. And so we just want to come and repent, Father. I want to come and repent on behalf of of my life and of the people gathered here this evening, of 